This is the Soil Sense Podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, consultants, and extension. In this series, you're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey, thanks for joining me for this bonus episode of Soil Sense. Uh, As you know, we've set out to do a series of 15 podcast episodes about the collaboration that's happening uh, where science meets practice when it comes to building healthier soils in North Dakota. Well, in my opinion, it would be completely irresponsible to try to tell the story of soil health in North Dakota without featuring the farmer we have on the show here today. We have with us Joe Brecker. He's a farmer in Rutland, North Dakota. And this interview you're going to hear was actually captured about a year ago in 2018 when I visited Joe's farm as part of another series we did with Cool Planet called Stories from the Soil. That episode appeared on the Future of Agriculture podcast, which is the other show I do, but we really wanted to bring it to you to share with you today. Uh, So we added it as sort of a bonus episode. Joe has pioneered soil health building practices in North Dakota for decades. He's been a full-time farmer for over 40 years now, and his farm was in his family uh, for a couple generations even before him. And what I think is most impactful about this episode, and the reason I I really hope you'll stick around and listen to the end, is you are going to get to see the impact that soil health building practices can have over time. In fact, in this episode, Joe's going to even give you a side-by-side field comparison um, of, of what can happen between a field that for example, was in pasture versus one that was um, tilled heavily for years. And the journey of trying to build the soil back up in in both cases, it's really, really fascinating. Uh, As I said, Joe farms in Rutland, North Dakota. Uh, He's a no-till farmer. He incorporates uh, cover crops, things like biostrip till. Uh, He gets compost from a local dairy. He's just doing some fascinating things. And, And you'll probably hear it in the episode, and you'll definitely know it if you ever meet Joe. But he's just very naturally curious. He's always thinking about these things and trying to scheme up ways he might better serve his farm, his soil, uh, and of course, the people that he's, he's growing these commodities for. Really enjoyed this. I know you will too. Joe's going to start off by just giving us a little bit of the history of his farm. Um, well, okay, so I'm a, I'm a fourth generation farmer on, on this farm place. Uh, my great-grandfather Nils Swanson homesteaded this in the late 1800s, and prior to that, it was tall grass prairie. So, uh, like all homesteaders, they used probably the plow, right? Horse, oxen, whatever, and they plowed up the prairie and started farming it. Now, that's going way back, but that's, that's the process, right? So, being the fourth generation, um, a lot of things had happened in those prior three generations. Uh, to degrade the soil. The soil had been worked with tillage for uh, 80, 100, 80 years before the, I came on scene farming it in the late 70s. And uh, it was noticeable. And my dad lived through the 1930s, the Dust Bowl days. Uh, when he was a teenager, 
he saw land blow uh, away terribly. Mm -hmm. So in, in his mind, there, there had to be a better way to farm. So when I heard of a concept of no-till farming, um, I investigated it further. He supported me. And in 1979, we had our first no-till field. And by 1980, we were all no-till. And we have been uh, ever since. So this is actually our 40th crop farmed wow. no-till. So 40 years of no-till farming, and I know based on a lot of factors such as uh, improved genetics and varieties that North Dakota has planted more and more acres of corn than historically had been more of a wheat state and now maybe becoming more of a corn state in some senses. And so I wanted to know from Joe's perspective if that shift into corn as a state in North Dakota had changed some of his perspectives and the way that he farms. Since we're located in the southeast corner of North Dakota, yeah. we're as close to the traditional Corn Belt, mm -hmm. right, as you can get yeah. and be in North Dakota. And the very southeastern counties of North Dakota have always had a corn component. Uh, I mean, my grandfather's farming in the 20s and 30s had corn. Uh, it wasn't as big a part of their farm as it has become now. Uh, now, corn is the primary acreage. Well, actually, it'd be a kind of a toss-up between corn and beans here. Uh, where then in the, well, up until the probably mid-80s, late-80s, uh, wheat was still a dominant crop in the area. Probably full 50% of the acreage were cereal grains. Now, I would say that's dropped to less than 20%. So it's it's... It's a weak third now in the crop rotations around here. My dad was a conservation, he was as conservation as he knew to be, as he could be. Uh, he would have liked to have been a better conservation farmer uh, because he still had erosion, he used tillage, and, uh, but he planted trees and you know, he did, he, he went from plowing to chisel plows. Uh, he did what he could do, but within that realm of tillage, you still leave yourself exposed more than you should from a soil erosion standpoint. So when the concept of no-till farming came up, I mentioned it to my dad, and he said, sounds really interesting. You should check it out. So he encouraged me to check it out. And uh, I actually, uh, some of the first no-till farmers that I met and talked with were actually Canadian. Southern Manitoba. So I went north to learn about no-till farming. And uh, uh, the others were from North Dakota. So I had about a half a dozen influencers that I met in uh, 1978. Uh, and uh, from that point on, uh, it was staying in contact with them, getting involved in an organization with them called the Manitoba North Dakota Zero-Till Association. Hmm. The zero-till is a Canadian slam okay. on no-till. Okay. Uh, and we're actually having a 40-year reunion this year of the Mandac Zero-Till Association. Apologize for a little bit of background noise. That was actually a conversation we were having over lunch uh, at, at a nearby cafe where uh, Joe is extremely popular. He's kind of the 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 uh, de facto mayor, I think, of Rutland, North Dakota. I don't know if he would say that, but it sure seemed that way. Enjoyed spending some time there uh, with Joe. 
you heard Joe's story of rapidly adopting these no-till principles from 1979, try it out, and they were all no-till in 1980 on. And that made me wonder, you know, the 80s were a very tough time for the farm economy. Many farmers went out of business in the 80s. And so how do you maintain this level of commitment to soil health when you're just struggling to keep the business viable? Here's what he had to say. Uh, agriculture was not easy in the in the 80s. Uh, commodity prices were low, interest rates were extremely high. I was paying 18% interest on some of my farm loans, uh, and and it was devastating. So it was a struggle to hang on to the farm. Uh, but there really didn't appear to be at that stage of the game. No-till was an asset to me. We were dry through the 80s, and uh, no-till was an asset because it conserved moisture. It not, it not only kept the land from blowing, but it conserved water, and that's what we needed through that period. So I was actually raising better yields, and it helped me come through the 80s. And with that said, by the late 1980s, 50% uh, of the land in Sargent County was no-till farmed. Hmm. What happened after that was we got wet in the 90s. And a lot of that no-till converted back to tillage because farmers just didn't know how to handle the excess of moisture. Yeah. They, were, they were used to no-tilling in a dry environment, but now what do we do? Yeah. So that's that some of the practices I do today is in direct relationship to the added moisture we were yeah. getting. So very interesting that the no-till helped them get through the dry years because it held more moisture, and that made perfect sense. But he alluded to right there the fact that some of the practices he, he uses now are a result of, of getting really wet uh, in, in the 90s. And how do you adapt a, a no-till process of trying to build soil health to a, an environment where you have more moisture? All right. We got wet in the 90s, and I really struggled. I and the other no-till farmers uh, in the region were really struggling trying to figure out what to, how, do, how do we get our crops planted, how do we keep them healthy in this excessively wet conditions. So again, some went back to tillage. I tried uh, planting additional plants in my system to use more water. And uh, it actually uh, turned out even better than I had imagined to plant cover crops. So. Uh, that plane we hear going over right now, mm -hmm. he's flying on rye onto corn uh, fields for next year's soybean crop. Joe has spent decades thinking about how he can build more soil health, build more organic matter, and of course, uh, continue to operate and expand a, a productive and profitable farming business. And I wondered what kind of keeps him driven to to always be focused on, uh, you know, the multiple bottom line, not only being profitable but also being uh, sustainable in, in many different ways, specifically with conservation. Here's what he had to say. It, it comes from my dad. Uh, he, he was a conservation farmer, uh, for sure. And, uh, but he didn't have as many tools to work with as I did. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll just give you a, a prime example. Uh, herbicides have shaped what we're able to do with reducing tillage. Uh, there, there's just no question. We can, by being able to control weeds using herbicides, uh, then, then we can control the amount of tillage we do. Now, the, a the advent of cover crops into agriculture is helping us um, possibly reduce the use of herbicides uh, and using plant competition 
to that will go a certain distance for that. Uh, but even in my cover crop systems, I still use herbicides. Sometimes it's to end the cover crop. Uh, so sometimes it's to put down a residual for uh, to have a clean crop through the growing season. But yes, I do, I do use herbicides, but in a very healthy soil, I, I believe the soil has the capacity to, to, uh, to handle those herbicide applications without detrimentally affecting it. And it seems like science is somewhat proving that out. You know, and, and there's, when, when I say a pesticide, there's hundreds of different kinds of pesticides. There's pesticides that are able to be used in organic farms and they have different effects on what you do. So even organic producers look through their list of available tools and pick the ones that work best for them. In addition to using these cover crops and being no-till, uh, Joe also brings in manure and creates compost. And he took us to uh, where he does his composting and, and described a little bit about the importance of it, what his process is, and how it gets applied. Okay, so where we're standing is where I used to winter my cows and uh, I would feed them here in these lots. Well, I, I sold my cows, uh, but I, I've, I've kept the lots uh, for obvious reasons, because they were still here. And I had an opportunity, as we had discussed in front of the composter, I had an opportunity to buy compost or buy manure from a dairy. So they haul them to me, line them up in windrows, like you see here, and the windrows start out like this high and about 16 feet wide. Mm -hmm. So they're really big, big and wide. And uh, about a semi-load every 15, 20 feet. So as you see, there's a lot of semi-loads out here. Yeah. I get between five and 600 semi-loads of, of raw uh, reconstituted manure from them because they take it out of a slurry. Mm -hmm. All right, so then once I get it, uh, I start the composting process with that green machine with the yellow beater on it and this has probably gone been gone through about three or four times and uh, it's every time I every year I do it it happens a little bit differently because weather conditions change I started composting it we were dry the end of June during the month of July we had 13 inches of rain and it didn't come all at one time thank goodness mm -hmm. it came very nice it came one inch two inches two and a half inches but it kept us from composting this because the lot was so wet, I couldn't. Mm -hmm. So the compost sat, it, it was heating through most of that time, but we only got it composted one more time. Uh, and, then, and then I think maybe, no, actually this probably has only been gone through twice. So this has only been gone through twice. Mm -hmm. uh, and now it has cooled down. So I test, test, checked it with the thermometers here and they're at outside temperature basically. Mm -hmm mid-70s, uh, mid-70s. And I'm not 100% sure, because I haven't been here exactly in the same place before, if I can get these heating again once I start running them, or if they're right. done, you know. They would normally have shrunk up a little bit more, uh, but they will continue to compost, even though they're not running a temperature, mm -hmm. they will continue to compost just because there's moisture in it and there's organic material there and there's biology in it, right? right? They'll continue to compost and get more condensed, darker, and look more like soil as time goes on. Um, the importance of the temperature, and I think that's something to talk about uh, just briefly. The importance of the temperature is that 
in order to, uh, I call it biosecurity, I'm not sure what it is, but to pasteurize it in such a way that it kills all the weed seeds, it needs to be maintained over 130 degrees for three to five weeks. Now, what I didn't meet in that criteria this year is, is five turns. You're supposed to have five turns at a certain temperature over a certain period of time. Um, I missed the turns because of weather. I don't think the end product is going to be any different, but uh, I just probably didn't get it as hot and turned as many times as I maybe should have this year. Okay. But you still think the weed seed got killed because of the temperature? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I got it turned twice and it, it was heating, you know, in those times right. and it, it, it heated for quite a while. I suppose the whole theory about turning it more times is to make sure the inside and the outside all gets right in that heat component yeah. long enough to get all the weed seeds killed yeah, in it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And at what, what, state, what part of your rotation will you, will you apply this? Good question. I go back on my cover crops, back on my cereal stubble. Okay. So, and the main reason why is because I have that bigger window to get it done in. Mm -hmm. We don't really know what the weather conditions will be like when we're finishing up corn, for example. Uh, beans would be one option to go back on bean ground. But I've just found, I started with putting it into my cover crop, uh, and, and I've just kind of stayed with that. Okay. All of these efforts with the composting and with the cover crops and, and with the reduced tillage, they lead to more organic matter. And, and I wanted to know from Joe if, if he could maybe quantify that for us a little bit. What is the noticeable difference between if he thinks to go back 40 years, he would have kind of continued down the more conventional path he was on versus uh, going over to this this path of, of using these methods to build soil health, if he could sort of quantify the differences? Well, if I would have been tilling the last 40 years, uh, I can tell you that when I took over most of the land I'm farming today, uh, it was at three and a half to 4% organic matter. Uh, most of that land today, if I'd have been tilling the last 40 years, would be at two and a half to three and a half percent organic matter. Maybe some even lower, just depending on how aggressive I was uh, and how much erosion I had during that time frame. So instead of with no tilling and then the last 20 years using cover crops, I've been able to bring those organic matters up a full 2% across the farm. So a lot of my farm is in that, uh, the low end of five and a half up to 7% organic matter. So quite a difference there from uh, dropping in organic matter, maybe down to two, two and a half percent all the way now because of the, the farming practices up closer to seven percent organic matter. And, and you may be asking yourself the question, you know, OK, that sounds good, but but why? You know, why does it matter? And that, and that was a question I had for Joe as well. And he took me to a field to give me a good example of how important it is to build soil health and how difficult it is once a soil has been damaged in any way to nurse it back to health. Listen to this story from Joe. This is a, it's an 80 acre soybean field. Uh, it has been farmed um, by me for the last 40 years. Uh, and prior to that, it was farmed by my dad for kind of as long as I can remember. And it's always been farmed north and south, north 40, south 40, as an 80, farmed half mile long, quarter mile wide. And uh, 
Last year I did a nitrogen rate study in corn in here where I had different nitrogen rates stripped north to south. Mm -hmm. And on the lower nitrogen rates, there was as much as 50 bushels difference in the corn between the north 40 and the south 40. And the, the difference is the historical practices that were done on this land uh, way back when, 80 years ago or so. Um, it just so happened that a grandfather on one side of my family owned the South 40 and a grandfather on the north on the north owned, uh, or on the other side of my family owned the North 40. And I think one was probably kept in grass during the 30s uh, and, and didn't erode. Uh, the North one eroded significantly, and my dad remembers that because he grew up right next to it. Mm -hmm. um, so right here where we're standing, we're standing on the, on the quarter mile line between the two 80s. And I don't know if, if, if you can pick it up, but there's actually a, a rise right here. There is, yeah, you can see. It. Visible rise? Yep. Okay. Well, that isn't natural. Can you imagine what it is, Tim? That, what, why is this rise here between the two fields? Um, I'm guessing because uh, the wind was blown into a windrow? Yeah. So this was a f old fence line, drift dirt ridge. Uh, from from the 30s mm. and now it, after years of farming it gets mellowed down flattened out and in some cases even like like you'd bring equipment in and just kind of you know because you don't want to farm over a big hump right you know it almost been like a terrace yeah right yeah um, so <clears throat> it just goes to show that there was some severe erosion at some point in time in the history of this field. For 50 years or more, it's been farmed the same, north and south. Huh. Fertilized the same, north and south. Same crop rotation. It's been one field for the last 50 years at least. But yet, it shows differences in the crops it raises from the north 40 to the south 40 every year. Wow. Last year, the nitrogen rate study I did in the corn uh, actually showed that up to 50 bushels difference in the low nitrogen rates. Yeah. So if, if the, it, what it basically says is that if you wouldn't have lost that organic com component in the soil through, due to erosion, um, you could apply a lot less fertilizer. Huh. So even though it's been no-tilled for 40 years, this was the very first field I no-tilled 40 years ago. Wow. This is my 40th crop on this field no-till. Um, even though it's been farm no-till, there's still a difference. Now, the organic matters on this North 40 are getting pretty good again. Yeah. And the so it general soil health looks good. If you put a shovel in there, uh, it, I mean, it looks good. Yeah. But I know it's not as good as the right. field that didn't lose, didn't have that severe erosion on it. Because of something that happened 80 years ago. Because of something that happened 80 to, to 120, 30 years ago. That's unbelievable. Once, once you lose it, I mean, it is... You can't, you can't ever bring it back. You can certainly do things to improve its, its outlook. Now, if we were to continue to farm it conventionally with tillage and continue to have erosion on it, you know, it would even be more significant. But I would venture to say there probably isn't a farmer alive that doesn't have this situation on their farm, someplace on their farm where they have an eroded hilltop, uh, an old farmstead that's really productive, 
because of manure that was hauled out there mm -hmm. or, the, or, or a piece of pasture. The same scenario gets played out time in and time out, farm after farm. So farmers know it's real. They know that production losses happen because of, of management practices on their farm. It is definitely fascinating to get to see a case study of decades of agricultural production and to see the impacts of one system greater than 50 years ago and how it's still having an impact today. And um, I, I will for a long time remember the words for, from Joe that once you, once you lose it, it's, it's really, really difficult to, to get it back. I think that is an important uh, warning for, for us in, in how we are um, utilizing our resources currently, I was I was curious from Joe with with you know farming full time for forty plus years, but having the farm in his family for much much longer than that, as you just heard. Is there anything that here just recently has sort of clicked with him, or a light bulb that went off um, just in in the recent past of of something he's learned? Well, okay, just recently, I was listening to a. Uh, extension soil soil specialist and he was talking about uh, some op well, some scientific data that he had accumulated himself and he was talking about uh, and he had soil sampled my farm was part of this he had he had taken soil samples from across North Dakota uh, sampling a no-till field and a conventional field adjacent to each other, similar, he was careful to get similar soil types, uh, but just basically management differences. And he was looking for <clears throat> a component in there um, of nitrogen fixing bacteria that was present in our native prairies in the upper Great Plains here. Um, and it's, it was one of the components to to how the grass grew green and you know every year came back and grew and you know grew tonnages of forage and then was able to die and regrow year after year after year. Okay, um, we know that legumes do that using a bacteria that attach to the root and there's this symbiotic relationship between the bacteria and the plant. One feeds the other, and the bat bacteria can actually take nitrogen from the air and feed that plant. Soybeans are a prime example of it, right? Um, but what I had, I didn't know, I'd never heard that. And that's the part that I keep getting amazed by is I always knew, I always paid attention to things that was happening above the soil, not things that was happening below the soil. And the research communities are also doing the same thing now. They're trying to see why do long-term no-till farmers get a 50-pound end credit? Okay, they know that they proved it because they've done test plots and grown the crops, uh, cereal grains, corn, uh, sunflowers. You know they've grown the crops. They know that if you have a long-term no-till practice, you can give yourself a 50-pound end credit that a person that tills does not get. Well, why? So this this researcher. Um, this extension soil specialist, he did this soil testing and he found out to the letter, the long-term no-till fields had the presence of this nitrogen fixing bacteria that's in uh, prairie soils. The conventional fields did not. 
Now, to me, that's a bombshell, right? right? That's a big deal. Now, we already knew we get a 50-pound end credit, but we didn't know why. Yeah, now you have the data to back it up. The data to back it up, or at just... least a good sound theory, right. right, to go with the reason why. As has been very consistent throughout this entire series, where we have profiled these various farmers, they still get excited about this stuff. They're excited to learn. They never feel like they've figured it out or arrived. They're always experimenting and thinking about what might be next. Also consistent has been their desire to share what they're discovering and share what they've learned. And that is certainly true in Joe's case. What I did in reaching out to other farmers uh, to learn how to do what I'm doing today and put my put the puzzles and pieces to my puzzle together. Uh, I'd like to do that with other farmers. If, if a farmer has a question about, about uh, crop rotations, no-till in general, cover crops, uh, I, I, I love to field those questions and help them. I can't make that decision for them because it's their own situation. But I can just share with them what I've been through and the process that I have gone through and how I've, you know, picked pieces that fit for me. Right. In my crop rotation, in what I have available to me. Not everybody has manure available to them. Some people have more and it's in a different form, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. So every, every situation is unique and, and it's just going to be. That's the nature of it. Uh, but I thoroughly believe that everybody has an opportunity to farm uh, with a more conservation, uh, in a more conservation manner mm -hmm. for, from a soil health aspect. It, it, everybody can do it. They, they just got to figure out how it works for them. Hmm. I can definitely attest to to Joe's willingness to help other farmers. His name came up multiple times as we were interviewing for the other 15 episodes of this show. Speaking of those other 15 episodes, if you didn't catch all of them, make sure you go back. They're still available on your podcast player. Go back and listen to them because I think we gathered several different perspectives and useful strategies for building healthier soils. Really was a lot of fun to interview experts and of course the experts in the field, the farmers that are putting these built soil health building practices uh, into practice. Also want to give a big thank you to the North Dakota Corn Council, really, for making this entire series possible. I'm excited uh, to hear the conversations that stem from this and hopeful that we'll be back with another season. So make sure you are subscribed uh, so that you'll be notified as soon as that might come out. Uh, hopefully, I will see some of you, if not all of you, in Fargo, December 9th through the 11th. I will be there for the Dakota Innovation Research and Technology Workshop. Conveniently, the acronym is DIRT. The DIRT Workshop, that's in Fargo, North Dakota, December 9th through the 11th, 2019. Uh, be there if you can. Dakota Innovation Research and Technology Workshop. Looking forward to that. Thank you so much for those of you who have listened. Uh, I think this is a very, very important start to featuring the stories of the conversations that are happening or the collaboration that's happening uh, to build healthier soils, which we all have a stake in. Thanks so much, and hopefully you will be back with us for another season of Soil Sense.